BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. We have to innovate. We have to keep pushing the envelope to build our audience and really be relevant. And the only way that you'll be able to innovate and provide those services and build value is to know who they are, what they do in a real way. I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Today, we have an honest-to-God magician. He began his career at what was a revolutionary tech company in its day, Wang Labs, had a few startups that hit, was a hugely important player in the incredible success of AOL in the 90s, continued his tech investing while building a Washington, D.C.-based sports powerhouse centered on the Washington Capitals and the Wizards. He's the former vice chair of AOL. He's the founder and CEO of Monumental Sports and Entertainment, and he's a co-founder of the investment group Revolution Growth, Ted Leonsis. Ted is Brooklyn-born, raised there and in Massachusetts. He's a Georgetown grad and tech pioneer. He's known for seeing things early and in a way others can't. He cares deeply about people and communities and always finds a way to put them first in all he does. He's the former mayor of a small Florida town. He has a wicked sense of humor, big heart, and a perpetual smile. He's been a friend for almost 30 years, and I have to say, he is also the person who talked me into going to AOL just as our big ride began, so I owe him a big one for that. Ted, welcome. Thank you, Bob. It was very sweet of you, and I missed everything about your voice and leadership, and you shouldn't be shy to say that I reported to you, and I learned a lot from you back in the day, so it's wonderful to be on your podcast. Well, you're very nice, Ted. I always thought of us as partners, and boy, did you contribute a lot. Before we jump into that meet, though, I want to do you in 60 seconds. You ready to go? Yep. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Vinyl or CDs? Vinyl. FaceTime or call? Oh, face-to-face, -face, hugging. D.C. or Brooklyn? D.C. Slow and steady or pedal to the metal? Both. 
<laughs> early riser or night owl? Oh, I'm early riser. I get all my best work done between 5 and 7 a.m. Movies at the theater or a streaming movie? Streaming. Crypto or dollars? Dollars. Elvis or David Bowie? Elvis. Me and Elvis have the same birthday. Guilty pleasure? I am spoiling the shit out of my grandchildren. <laughs> okay, let's jump into the meat. You have an uncanny ability to see around corners, computers, new media, online, esports, and on and on. Let's start with the topic of the minute, AI. Friend or foe? And how's it going to change our lives and business? Oh, it's totally faux right now. And I'm horrified with the answers that I'm hearing from, you would think, socially responsible CEOs. So, you know, we used to talk about early in the computer industry, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And so, you know, these machines in the cloud that are doing machine learning, the input that they're getting, it's bad info. You can't tell the sentiment, if you will, that's on social media and Reddit and all of the rivers of data that's at scale. And so we will get very, very bad answers because it's holding a mirror up to ourselves, but it's not our real self. We're holding a mirror up to this faux personality, this faux knowledge base. When you're seeing and you hear a CEO say, the machines lied, they call it hallucinations, but the machines lied and we don't know why. It's like, hey, full stop till you can figure out why. So with this view of AI in our day in taking the internet to the mass market, it was really AOL versus Microsoft. Today in the AI battleground, and it is a battle, who do you think are the big competitors? If you're sort of watching saying, wow, we need to watch this, who are the two companies or are there more that are really in the middle of this that we have to look to provide that kind of guidance? Well, like every industry, you'll have the big incumbents, certainly here, Microsoft, which has a multi-trillion dollar market cap and more cash than the United States does right now, they will be formidable. Apple certainly will be late to the game, but they'll be formidable. Obviously, Alphabet and Google, they'll be big and important. And then you'll have startups. But where I see a positive difference is that we always thought in our generation that there would be some fantastic verticalization and where you could go deeper in a vertical with the solution. You know, we thought vertical search one day would be important. I'm an investor in a company called Tempus, T-E-M-P-U-S, and it is a AI company. It uses a power plant now, mostly from Google and Alphabet, but you wouldn't know it as a doctor, a healthcare provider, or a consumer. And it is noble. It is using the power of machine learning, all of the data that's out there, to 
help families answer a question. Your wife gets diagnosed with stage three cancer and she would go to the doctor and they would take a cell and say, you've got cancer. And then they would tell you, hey, there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine of 15 people. And based on that and my experience as the doctor, it's her genetics, family history. Here's what you should be doing. So AI in that kind of setting where you can provide at scale data with deep genomic information, to me, is a positive on AI. If we can take that high road, use a higher calling around the tools, I think we're going to be in good shape. And I think that will only come from deep verticalization, where companies are saying, this isn't a business, we're using this technology for research and to help doctors to find better ways. And yes, it'll help save money. Yes, it'll help activate more efficiency. But we should be using the technology to answer big questions, not fill the algorithms up with junk. So let's take AI sports. You got into team ownership in the late 90s, and I'm sure technology's affected your business. What are the new opportunities with the tech today, and especially with AI? Is this going to select your players now? Well, that's really interesting because when, you know, I came into sports in 1999, everyone lived on fax machines. And we were the first team, at least we gave everyone personal computers. I gave everyone email addresses. It was basic connectivity. But then we started to say, hey, this is a platform to launch a lot of new technology. And then if it takes hold here, it can be nested, if you will, within sports and arenas because we touch so many people and then move into general media. And so the first big investments that were being made were selecting of teams for coaching the players and the amount of work that was done in high-speed cameras and being able to create these heat maps on where was the optimal place for the player to take the shot. When you were playing defense, we would pixelate the floor. And I remember once Kobe Bryant were playing the Lakers and he was going to get the end-of-game shot and was, well, if you can move Kobe two pixels to the left, he shoots 38%. If he's those two pixels to the right, he's 44%. All you can do is get him to the sub-optimized place. And we're the most transparent of providing that data to fans, to coaches, to competitors, and now to sports betters, right? They have access to more data, certainly than a Wall Street trader has in trying to pick whether you should short a stock, right? So I looked at sports as being the most data-rich side on the product, and now it's moved into marketing. We have a 
database of monumental sports and entertainment that's closing in on 4 million active records where we really know who's coming into the building, how long have they been a customer, what have they spent, how do they renew, who do they give their tickets to, how far do they travel, what are their viewing habits, are they streaming now, or are they still watching games on cable, how important is radio? One thing I'll say, radio and digital radio and podcasting has become incredibly powerful and on trend again. We have to innovate. We have to keep pushing the envelope to build our audience and really be relevant. And the only way that you'll be able to innovate and provide those services and build value is to know who they are, what they do in a real way, not a superficial way, which is what's happened on the internet. But I think it's lost its efficacy and deep verticalization, really understanding your customer, really understanding how to connect all the way through all of the ways that they live their life on the net is what the challenge for the next set of marketers will be in our industry. Well, okay, we've covered the business. I mean, it's fascinating how you've applied all you knew from technology to sports. I want to jump for a minute to you with a personal matter. One of the most interesting things we talked about when we first met was this list you had, 101 things you wanted to do before you die. Tell us about the genesis of that list. And by the way, I also want to know how many of those 101 have you achieved? Well, thank you. It's you know, deeply personal and everyone will have their reckonings. Everyone will have something very disruptive happen in their life and times. And it's how you react to that. And a lot of times the disruption ends up being a great advantage if you take it in and process it in a positive way. So for me, you know, I was a poor kid growing up. My father was a waiter. It was an immigrant family. We grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, working in mills. And then my dad went into the service and married later in life and was a waiter. And we lived in a rental apartment in Brooklyn. And I'm an only child. They taught me to work hard, get good grades. If you get good grades, you'll get into a good school. If you get in a good school and you get good grades, you'll get a good job and you'll make a lot of money. And so I followed that mantra. I went to Georgetown University and had some academic success and got out of college and worked at a tech company, as you mentioned, Wang Laboratories. And then I had the entrepreneurial bug and I started my first company. I was lucky and maybe clever and I sold that company two years after I started for $60 million. And Bob, I declared victory. And how society tells you to declare victory ends up being false social responsibility and false victory. You buy stuff. You're very popular with people who are using you as their platform for success. And so I kind of lost my way. And then I got on the wrong airplane. 
I had a reckoning. The plane was going down. I was alone on the plane and I started praying. Seemed like the right thing to do. And I started laughing because I was praying to God saying, you know, please let me get through this. I don't want to die. And my first thought was, if there was a God listening, they'd say, oh, now you need me. You're in deep angst and you think I'm here to help you. So I reverted back to type. I said, all right, let's cut a deal. If I live through this, I promise I will leave more than I take. How's that? Obviously, we made it through, but I've always been, well, a deal's a deal. How will I now pay that debt back? I made this list of 101 things to do before I die so that I could say at end of my life, could I look back and metric and score, how did I do? You know, as I matured and I look at the list, I go, eh, some of the things that I thought was a good way of keeping score ended up not being as important as I thought. But Bob, and you'll remember you were kind of there, I had put on my list, own a sports team, win a championship. And if I hadn't have written that down, when I was approached to buy the teams, I initially said no. I said, I'm working at AOL. I have two young children. There's no way I could own a team. And I came home and Lynn said to me, what's new? What happened today? And I said, oh, this guy approached me wanting to buy teams. And she said, what did you say? And I said, I can't. I'm engaged at the company. We have young kids. And Lynn said to me, hey, we've been together for a long time. <laughs> we'll be together forever. What if you get 99 of the 101 things done and you don't buy a team and you don't win a championship? And so, well, this is why I love you. Yeah, I'm going to go. And I bought the team and we've won championships. But it's also been like the best financial decision as a family we could have made. So I'm now at like 94. I wrote this list in 1986. And back then I said, I want to go into outer space. That seemed crazy, right? Now I go... Oh, I'm definitely going to get that one checked off, right? <laughs> I mean, Richard Branson's called me, Bezos has called me, and I'm sure I will get into outer space. And I'm clicking them off. But it also was, will I be happy and self-actualized at the end of the journey? And some of the things on the list weren't going to make me happy. And so I've matured, if you will. And I don't think I have to get all 101 done. But, you know, big important things like falling in love, getting married, having children, having grandchildren, living a healthy life, giving back. Those are the things that I think will be most important at the end of the day. You touched on your childhood and growing up and what it meant to you. If I remember my story right, I think your high school guidance counselor told you you weren't college material and tried to steer you to a vocational school. Obviously, that didn't sit well with you. You went on to Georgetown. And 
I think that really set you on the track of technology and got you into tech. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Because I, I do think that probably was a seminal moment for Ted Leonsis and where you wound up. Yeah, I probably created the first algorithmic-based liberal arts program ever, and it was powered by a Jesuit priest who was my mentor. I had to write a thesis, and I was a little bit lazy and said, what are you going to write about? And I said, well, I'll come up with the idea over the weekend. So I went to the library and I was with some buddies and I said, all right, I'm going to find the shortest, easiest book to read in the library. I found Old Man in the Sea and it's a novella, if you will. And I read in like an hour and a half. And on Monday, I went to see my mentor, Father Joseph Durkin, Society of Jesus. And he said, okay, great. Tell me what you thought of the book. And I gave him like an annotated book report. And he said, I'm so disappointed in you. There's so much going on in this book with this author. At the time it was published, you're better than this. And he challenged me to be more of a critical thinker. So I didn't know anything about Hemingway. There was no internet back then. So I literally went and got a bunch of his books. And the second book I read across the river and into the trees was nothing like Old Man in the Sea. And as I started to do research, Hemingway was a journalist, Esquire magazine, New Yorker magazine. And then he became a writer. And Old Man in the Sea was published in the 50s. He won a Pulitzer Prize. He ended up taking his life. And I just had this idea that I think Ernest Hemingway wrote this book earlier in his career and he needed the money. And, you know, jazz was becoming popular and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. And he went back to his journalistic style. And Father Durkin said, well, great. How are you going to prove it? And I said, I don't know. Call his wife. I'll, <laughs> I'll try and talk to the publisher. And Father Durkin, to his credit, said, Why don't we use a computer? And I said, A computer? Like in the movies? <laughs> like we had one computer on campus in the registrar's office. It was an IBM 360, and it spit out for students what classes you would take. So he introduced me to a linguistics major. He introduced me to someone who worked in the computer MIS department. And we went to dinner and we came up with the idea of I would have to type in the first 5,000 lines of a book and articles from the 50s, from the 40s, from the 30s. And then the linguistics major, she came up with these metrics, words per sentences, sentences per paragraph, uh, pronoun references. There were 17 measures. And then the programmer wrote this code to basically answer the question based on 
this algorithm, when was Old Man in the Sea as a control written? And it said the book was written in the 30s, not in 1952. And it was mind-blowing to us. And, you know, I wrote a college thesis, but it showed how a computer and software and algorithms could find essence of truth in the data and show you something that you never knew happened. And it was truly for me an aha moment and it powered pretty much everything for the rest of my life and career made a movie in a similar fashion in that I didn't have anything to read, Bob, and I started reading the last 30 days of the New York Times from a bookstore in St. Bart's, and I read an obituary about an author named Iris Chang, and she wrote a book called The Rape of Nanking, and when I got home, I went on Amazon, and I said, I'm going to buy the book. And their simple little algorithm said, oh, if you like this book, then you'll like these books. And there was a starburst that said the forgotten Holocaust. And it was basically behind the Chinese communist wall. This was in 1934. I was at AOL. I had some contacts. I worked with the people at CAA. And I made a film called Nanking. And it won best. It opened Sundance. It went on HBO. It won the Emmy Award for Best Documentary. And it all came from reading an obituary and an algorithm telling me there's more to this story than this just this one book. And that turned me into making films. More math and magic right after this quick break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. 
AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now, you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Ted Leonsis. So, Ted, you make mundane things sound exciting usually by adding a twist. And I want to tell a story on you. When I got to AOL and we were in this whole process of how can we make this company profitable, I was laying out to our group of senior leaders, tying it to what the stock price could be, because they all were equity holders, if we achieved those earnings levels. And, you know, I was starting to get mathematical. It's this and this and this. And you could see people sort of glazing over some skepticism. You suddenly amped up the discussion by declaring to the room that, Bob, I'm going to give you my house if we hit that stock price. Suddenly, the room was on fire. And by the way, when we walked out of the room, you sort of gave me that Ted Leonsa smile and goes, I'll be delighted to give you my house if the stock hits that price. And you knew exactly what you were doing. I've seen you use that technique other times, and I know you're using it in your business. How do you think about that? And What's the benefit of it? Well, I think that people want to have romance in their life. People want to have hopes and dreams. And my beef, if you will, after we acquired Time Warner, was we put out a company goal of $10 billion of EBITDA. And with a billion dollars of synergy EBITDA savings. And I remember saying, do you think a mom or a dad is going to work late, work over the weekend and come home and have spouse or partner say, what you do today? And it's. I contributed to our synergies in EBITDA. It's like, no, people want purpose. They want higher calling, right? When AOL was at its best, we said, we're out to create a medium that is more valuable than the media before it, radio, television. And we kind of meant that because the higher calling of the internet of interactivity and scale and faster and cheaper till it's free was very enabling, very empowering, very connected to people's 
DNA of we want to be social. We want to belong to something. And, you know, why you and I made a great team was you were the best business person I had ever been exposed to. But my gift was to be able to say, how do we motivate people and what will become their story and narrative when they go home? You've got to be able to have both in balance to build great businesses. As an observer, one of your superpowers has been people. You spot people. But I want to ask you a question about that. When you spot these special people and you've got a a long list of those folks you've found, do you treat them differently? Do you manage them differently than you do everybody else? For me on the people skills, a lot of it comes from my family, the ethnic family around a dinner table will rip each other and needle each other and fight and have real diversity. But then when you leave the dinner table, you know, I'd have friends over from college who'd come and think, you guys hate each other. (laughs) My family, we don't even talk at dinner, right? Or we don't even have dinner together. But they wouldn't realize, no, This is how we share our emotions, our thoughts. And then when we leave the dinner table, we're as tight as can be. So that's always driven me. I want companies, I want executives that aren't afraid to speak truth, to give you a different point of view. And once we get into that cadence, then we can have a great relationship. And the relationships are gonna be filled with ups and downs. One of my business partners, Peter Goober, the great Peter Goober is in his, he's the youngest 80 year old on the planet and the greatest guy ever. We once did a deal. We didn't realize we were competing with each other for the deal. And then we found out at the last minute, he won the deal. And I went to him and said, wow, I had no idea you were bidding on this and I wanted to do it. And he said, hey, I love you. Let's split it. 50-50, I'm not gonna make any vig on it, any profit. And Ted, we'll laugh together, we'll cry together, but we'll be in it together. And it'll probably be more successful because I'm not that smart, you're not that smart anymore, but together we probably would do well. And that was such genius. The company, we bought Team Liquid, which is one of the most valuable esports teams. We made investments in Epic Games and the Antic, and the company's called Axiomatic. And it's a big hit. And his instinct was really right. This notion of we'll laugh together, we'll cry together, and together we're going to do a better job really proved true. That was like the ultimate people person, and it worked. And so, you know, I've always believed be a people person, do the right thing in the right way, and make a ton of money, right? Let's, let's go to some advice before we wrap up. I want to do one piece of advice. If you could go back in time and give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? Slow down a little bit. 
I mean, I really got driven by accomplishment and this relentlessness in pace sometimes lets you lose a great experience because you're just so busy, right? I mean, you used to say, you want something done, give it to the busiest person. (laughs) And there's a lot of truth to that. But the price you pay is you'll miss a moment with your grandchild. You'll miss a moment with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You'll miss a sunset. As you grow older, you realize that was a big price to pay. And so my advice would be stay on that fast track, but it's okay to take the step off. We wrap up each episode of Math and Magic with a shout out to the greats on the math side of the business, the analytical view, and the magic side, the sheer creativity. You've seen so many people. I got to ask you for the shout outs. Who would you give the shout out to for the math person and for the magic person? You know, for the math person, I am going to go out of the box because his reputation somehow got besmirched. In 1977, um, my first job out of college, I was asked to find a speaker for our group. And I had read an article and then went and met a man named Dr. Minsky who worked at the MIT lab and was considered a father of AI. And he came and gave a speech as a prop. He wanted a piano. And he started his speech by sitting at the piano. And he was a trained like concert pianist. He played piano beautifully and it was shocking it was like out of context and then he went into his speech and said we'll know when the machines are important and have arrived when they can do that because every time i play i'm feeling the music i'm sentient And then he talked about the formula and the algorithms. And boy, that really had an effect on me. Magic. I would say, you know, an obvious person was Steve Jobs. And, you know, we knew Steve. I grew up with Steve. His gift was saying, you know, why is Apple the most valuable company in the world? Apple is where liberal arts in engineering come together. And he was able to take art and science and be able to express it. And obviously what's ended up being the most important piece of technology of our lifetime, time on the iPhone. Ted, you are a magnificent human being, a great friend. I think you were, by the way, destined to be this creative genius and successful business person. You shared a birthday with Elvis, David Bowie, and even Stephen Hawking. So must have been something in the stars. Thanks for sharing your stories today, and thanks for decades of friendship. Here are a few things I picked up from my conversation with Ted. One, build value with data. Today, businesses have access to more data than ever before, but don't rely on just that. Connect the dots, 
to get a deeper picture of your audience and provide them with services they value. Two, make a list of your priorities. After a close brush with death, Ted made a list of 101 things he wants to do before he dies. Had he not narrowed down these priorities, he wouldn't have achieved some of his biggest dreams and opportunities. Take time to reflect on your own goals so when opportunity knocks, you know what you want. Three, remember what motivates people. Ted is the ultimate team builder. He knows people are excited when they get to work together to build something visionary and purposeful. Create opportunities for your team to work on something that inspires them. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sidney Rosenblum for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Our editor, Emily Marinoff. Our engineers, Jessica Kreinchich and Bahid Frazier. Our executive producers, Nikki Etor and Ali Perry. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app.